Thanks, Kelly, for these great songs from How Great Thou Art to How Great Is Our God. Isn't our God great? Isn't our God big? He's bigger than time and space. He's bigger than us. He's bigger than when we live. He's bigger than where we live. I'd like to draw your attention to something that's in the bulletin today. Eric uh, writes a wonderful article each week, and I hope that you'll be sure and read uh, his words uh, in this week's article especially. He shares a lot about our Praise and Harmony workshop that's coming up uh, August 18th through 20th with Keith Lancaster of Acapella, and he's going to be sharing some more about that. But I wanted to amen his uh, wonderful thoughts and let you know that... uh, Probably close to 30 or so years ago, um, uh, our church at Woodland West in Arlington, Texas, where I was preaching at the time, had the a cappella group come and do a concert for us. And I knew that we wanted to bring them here sometime, and we did that. Uh, this past year, and it was a wonderful, wonderful event. But during that event, we heard about this Praise and Harmony workshop, and we thought, you know, that would be something that would be so important. And so I went to the elders and I said, we really need to bring them here in concert, and we really need to do this weekend workshop. Uh, From the time I first started talking to the church here about coming as your preacher, uh, and that was eight years ago, uh, we talked about our worship and we talked about our singing and making, having a continuity and a flow in our worship services and helping us improve our singing. And it's been that way ever since. We continue to work on that. And one of the things that we want more than anything else, and everyone in here that's got gray hair or white hair or kind of scalp-colored hair. Uh, What we want more than anything else is for our kids and our grandkids and our great-grandkids to grow up with faith. We want them to believe in Jesus. We want God to be their God, not just their parents or their grandparents' God. And we want them to be connected with the church, to see it not just as their parents' church, but as their church. And these little ones that are up here today, let me tell you, if you want to know anything about our church as far as where something is, just ask anybody that's this tall or lower, because they will take you right to it. And I love that. I love that they identify so much with what we do here, that that is true of them. One of the most emotional connections that we have with our God and with the church is through our singing through our singing. And I love that we sing these uh, wonderful hymns such as How Great Thou Art, such as Logan led last week, Trust and Obey. Those are two of the ones that we sing a lot and we sing a bunch of those. We always strive to have a balance of old and new, fast and slow, contemporary versus traditional. That's what we want. And that's the desire that we have. But for that to happen, that means we learn new songs as we go. I could ask you how many of you know the song In Christ Alone and almost every hand would go up. It's become one of our favorites. Or the song Wonderful Merciful Savior. Wonderful Merciful Savior, like one of the ones we just sang, teaches one of the most difficult doctrines in all of Scripture, the Trinity. Have you made that connection in those three verses? And again, that's one that we just learned several years ago and now has become one of our very favorites. The song we sang last week, How Deep the Father's Love. I've had several of our older members over the last couple of years say that song has become my very favorite. Uh, And that's such an incredible, incredible blessing. How great is our God. The song we'll close with today or we'll sing later, Seek Ye First. 
That song came out in 1971. I was in the youth group in the 1970s. That's the 1970s, by the way, not the 1870s. And that song, Seek Ye First, wasn't even in our books. But it was in a little devotional book that I had, Kelly, you probably had, and so many others had, of newer songs that were newer than our songbook. And they were songs like Seek Ye First. And now it's one of our favorites. It's one of those that we can sing with our eyes closed. But it was brand new in 1971. And churches began to learn it in the 70s and 80s, just like we're learning some of the songs now. And I, and I, I can quote you this from one of the uh, uh, author's notes about this song. Seek Ye First has been included in almost every hymnal published in North America since 1980. That's how pervasive that song has become. But it wasn't well known in this church in the 1970s until it was learned. And that's true of every other song that we have added uh, to what we do, what we sing, to these wonderful Christian hymns that we will never stop singing. But now these new favorites as well that connect to our children and our grandchildren The way some of the old ones, like How Great Thou Art, connect with us. And that's what we want. We want that connection. And I appreciate the elders here so very much, hearing my request and acting on it. And us bringing uh, a cappella here last, uh, uh, in the past year, that was, this place was full and it was wonderful and it was marvelous. Or bringing this Praise and Harmony workshop where Keith will work with our worship leaders and worship planners just from our church on Friday night starting at 6.30. And then on Saturday afternoon at 2 o'clock there will be other churches that will be invited to come. All of our members will be invited to come. And Keith will lead us in worship and he'll help us to learn some of these new songs as well. And then that Sunday morning Keith will teach a combined teen through adult class at 9 o'clock. And then he will lead the worship during uh, our 10 o'clock worship hour. And the preacher will preach on worship from Philippians, a shorter sermon. I know you don't believe that, (laughs) but that's what's going to happen. And it will be a wonderful, wonderful worship experience. So again, take a look at Eric's article today and at the ones that are coming up. Be prayerful about August 18th through the 20th. And... Go into that with great faith and fervor and a desire, a desire to help include our children and our grandchildren in a life of faith that will be not your faith, not my faith, their faith. That's what we want more than anything else. And that's what God wants, this insistent, persistent God that Grant talked about as we gather together in prayer during our shepherd's prayer time. What a great way to say that. The insistent, persistent God. He is not going to give up on us. He is not going to let us go easily. And that's how he felt about Job. Job was the most faithful, righteous man of his day, but it wasn't enough. Because the insistent, persistent God saw that Job had a ways to go still. You see, Job knew one thing about God, that he exists. You've heard me say two things about God. Well, Job knew one of those things. 
He knew that God exists. But that was it. And that wasn't enough for God. This insistent, persistent God. There was something else that Job needed to learn about God. And so as we've been going through the book of Job over the last couple of months, we find ourselves towards the end. We'll close out. Eric will be preaching next Sunday. I'll close out this series on the 30th. And we'll look at this whole message. But today we focus on what God has to say to Job and specifically Job's reaction. Because this insistent, persistent God was not willing to just let Job stay where he was. And he's not willing to let you stay where you are either. He wants you to continue to grow in your faith and to continue to trust him more and more each day. And to continue to take that faith and share it with others. Through your example, first of all, but with your words as Well, he does want you, by the way, to do a much better job than Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar did. As we've talked, I've had several of you tell me, my favorite part of this series has been when you talked about Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar and how they said all of the wrong things. And I think we kind of identify with them there. But there's another man that comes on the scene, and his name is Elihu. Elihu is the transition from Job's friends to Job's God. And we see that in chapters 32 through 37. Elihu is one of those that everybody kind of feels a little differently about. Some say he's just like Job's friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Just as shallow, just as narrow-minded. Others say, no, Elihu says some things that God is going to come along and say. I think Dr. John Willis says this of Abilene Christian, and I think he's right, that Elihu is the transition from Job's friends to Job's God. In a sense, Elihu prepares Job to hear from God. His speech is kind of like Job's friends sometimes, but it's also somewhat similar to what God will share. And another interesting thing about Elihu is Elihu is not mentioned in the epilogue. You know, you've read the book of Job and you fast forward to chapter 42 and you read how God makes everything right and all of that. And how God calls on Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar to go to Job and ask him to pray for them. But Elihu isn't mentioned there. And that's kind of interesting. So I want us to take a look at some of the things, a few things that Elihu shares before we get to God's interaction with Job and Job's response. In Job chapter 32, beginning in verse 1. So these three men, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. They just couldn't answer him. They couldn't shut him up. Verse 2, but Elihu, son of Barakel the Buzite of the family of Ram, became very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God, and very angry with Job's friends. As verse 3 says, he was also angry with the three friends because they had found no way to refute Job and yet had condemned him. Now Elihu had waited before speaking to Job because they were older than he. So we already see that Elihu's kind of got a good head on his shoulders. He's a younger guy. He doesn't want to speak ahead of the older guys. And so he gives them the first run. And they fail miserably. And Elihu knows it. Verse 5. But when he saw that the three men had nothing more to say, his anger was aroused. 
So Elihu, son of Barakel the Buzzite, said, I am young in years and you are old. That is why I was fearful, not daring to tell you what I know. I thought age should speak, advanced years should teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in a person, the breath of the Almighty that gives them understanding, not age. It is not only the old who are wise, not only the aged who understand what is right. Therefore I say, listen to me, I too will tell you what I know. And so then Elihu begins. And as I said, it sounds in many places much like what God will come along and share. For example, in chapter 36, beginning at verse 22. God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed his ways for him or said to him, you have done wrong? Remember to extol his work, which people have praised in song. All humanity has seen it. Mortals gaze on it from afar. How great is God? Verse 26. Beyond our understanding, the number of his years is past finding out. And that's going to be something that Job comes to actually realize and apply to himself and to his own situation. Lastly, in chapter 37, beginning at verse 14, Elihu says this, Listen to this, Job. Stop and consider God's wonders. Do you know how God controls the clouds and makes his lightning flash? Do you know how the clouds hang poised, those wonders of him who has perfect knowledge? You who swelter in your clothes when the land lies hushed under the south wind, can you join him in spreading out the skies hard as a mirror of cast bronze? And it's that kind of questioning that when God does come on the scene, that's what he hits Job with. And so Elihu is that transition point. Elihu is the man that gets Job from his own rants and venting, such as in chapter 3, past the, the ignorant things that his friends share in the chapters that follow, and then hearing Job speak out, not only railing against them, but railing against God. From a sincere, honest heart that doesn't understand and doesn't let go of not only his integrity, but also his innocence. And that may be where he lost it. And so Job gets his wish. God responds. Job gets his wish, God responds. This comes under the category of be careful what you wish for, right? (laughs) Because this is not going to go well for Job, as far as you could tell. But it's going to go great for him in coming to understand clearly, more clearly, about what he knows about God and what he doesn't know about God and what to do with that. It's that insistent persistent God that responds to Job. God answers Job with questions. God answers Job with questions. That You say, Bill, that's not an answer. Well, that's the best I got <laughs> because that's what God does. And we've seen God do that throughout the Old Testament, even in the days of Jesus, asking things like to Adam and Eve, where are you? Like he didn't know. Well, we were hiding in the garden because we were naked and afraid. And next God asks what? Who told you you were naked? God knew the answers to all of those, but he pierces them with their coming to terms with what they've done 
by asking them questions. Jesus does much the same thing throughout his ministry. And so God answers Job with questions. And it comes in two rounds. Round one is Job 38 through 39. And so we begin reading in chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the sun, out of the storm. And you know, whoa, it is about to come down. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, who is it that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. God says, brace yourself like a man. Bildad had come along in one of his speeches and he had called Job a worm. Job himself in one of his speeches had said, hey, I would take the indictment that God has against me and I would wear it on my shoulders like a crown, like a prince. I would approach him. Well, Job is neither a worm nor a prince. God knows exactly what he is. He knows exactly what we are. Prepare yourself like a man. No more, no less. A human being. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. And then God continues in verse 4. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. And that's how it goes. Verse after verse after verse after verse. Chapter after chapter. God doesn't answer any of Job's questions. He doesn't answer. He doesn't try to justify himself at all. He just hits him with one question after another. One question after another. Where were you when all of this world was created, Job? How is it that you see all of these things working with this great design? Tell me, you must know. That's certainly what you have said. God answers Job with one question after another. And then after the end of this first lengthy speech from God... We read this as God ends his uh, first response and Job replies to God. Chapter 40, verse 1. The Lord said to Job, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. This is what Job had been crying out for, demanding. God, if you would just meet me in court, if you could meet me with a mediator, somebody that could come between us, I'm telling you, I have a case and I would win. And God says, okay, Mr. Big Shot, let's hear it. Verse 3 of chapter 40, then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Job's first response, silence. God did what Job's friends couldn't do. He shut him up. And he did that by asking Job questions that helped Job to see. There's a lot about being God, Job, that you don't understand. And so at this point, God had won the argument. And though he has silenced Job, the Lord goes on for a second round. Why? 
Why does the Lord go on after he has won the argument, after he has silenced Job? Why does he do that? Because God is not concerned with winning the argument. God wants to win the soul. And that's why there's more chapters after chapter 40, the first few verses. God could have stopped right there, and in an argument, he had won. He had shut Job up. He had proven that he didn't know what he was talking about, and Job acknowledged that, but that wasn't enough. Because you see, God's main concern is not with winning arguments, nor should ours be. God was concerned about winning the soul of Job. And that's where our concern should lie. That's where Jesus' concern was. And so round two starts in chapter 40, verse 6. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Same approach. Same thing. Job is saying, oh man, boy, I wish I had never said anything. And now he's hitting me again. And it's the same thing. Verse 8, would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's and can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them low. Look at all who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. That was one of his complaints that God wasn't doing. God says, okay, let's see you have a whack at it. Verse 13, bury them all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. And the truth of the matter was, Job's own right hand could not save him, though he thought it could. And now he's been beginning to realize that that just wasn't true. And guess what? Your right hand can't save you either. Your own acts, your own knowledge, your own Uh, obedience, it can't save you, but God can. God can. And that's what Job had to learn. And so Job is hit by God with all of these questions. Round two, let's see you do it. If you think you can do such a better job at being God than Job, have at it. Job's first response was silence. After round two, Job's second response, repentance. Chapter 42, beginning in verse 1. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, verse 5, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. 
God didn't want Job's silence. He didn't want Job to know that God won the argument. He wanted Job's heart. He wanted Job's repentance. He wanted to win Job's soul. And God would have kept going on round after round after round, I believe, if Job had not repented. But he did. You asked me about these things, and I had no business acting like I knew, Job says. And then he says in verses 5 and 6 that interesting thing, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. And that's what our faith is like, isn't it? We hear about him through all the Bible classes, which are good, all the Bible reading, which are good, all the sermons, which are mostly good. And those are all good things that we should do. But that's just hearing about God. Hearing those things and putting them in our lives, applying them to my own sin. That's what Job did, and that was the difference. I had heard all about you. I could quote all the verses. I did lots of good deeds. I had heard about you. But now, I've seen you. And when you get a vision of the true and holy God, you repent. And that's what Job had refused to do up till now. My eyes had heard of you, my, but now my, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job had known that God exists, but he needed to know something beside that. There are two things about God that with Job I have come to believe. Number one is God exists, but Job had to learn to say something else about God. I'm not him. I'm not him. And that means sometimes I don't get how he acts. I don't understand some of the things he does. I really don't understand why he doesn't act sometimes. And some of the things he doesn't do. And Job wasn't okay with that until now. Now that his eyes had seen God. And he repented. And we must do the same. Great are you, Lord. How great is our God. How great thou art. Art. Sean McDowell has written, God does not answer Job's plea with a reason for his pain. Rather, he helps Job understand that his perspective is limited and that God can still be trusted amidst Job's questions and pain. Basically, he's saying we won't always understand what God is doing or why. But God can be trusted even when he can't be understood. Here's the question of the book of Job. Is your faith in your understanding of God? Or is your faith in the holy, eternal Lord God himself? The one that doesn't always act like you think he ought to act. That was the faith Job had before. That God exists. But now... He had learned to say, I'm not him. I'm not him. And so I believe, I repent in dust and ashes. Do you believe that? Can you say that? And trust God with such a mature 
deep faith that even when you don't understand Him, you still trust Him. You still believe. Imagine as Cameron shared about those first few verses of 1 Corinthians 15 that define what the gospel really is. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that is witnessed to by His appearances. And how they must not have understood when Jesus died on the cross that day. And everything turned dark in their lives, physically and symbolically. And they waited. But on the first day, they understood, at least partially. And they came to understand more and more, especially when the Holy Spirit was given in Acts chapter 2. Just a moment, we'll sing this great song, Seek Ye First, from Matthew 6. Seek first God's kingdom. Seek first God's righteousness. Seek first God. If you're ready to give your life to that God, to confess that you believe in Him, that you've repented of your sins and are ready to start a different path, trusting in God rather than yourself. And being baptized into Jesus Christ who came and lived and died and rose for you. We would love to help you do that. You come as we stand and sing this.